0: everybody what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the lights out podcast i'm your host josh as always i've got my brother and producer joel here with me as well and today we are covering one of the most horrific events in human history and that is the 2017 las vegas massacre i'm sure everyone has heard of this event i mean how could you not this is probably one of the most terrifying things any of us could experience in in real life. I mean, this is just something that is even today hard to wrap your head around, that somebody could carry out a massacre like what we saw in Las Vegas. I wanna make it abundantly clear that one of the reasons why I cover these is not just because it's this shocking and crazy and horrific event, but also because I think more often than not, when terrible things like this happen, and I mean, it could be anything horrible that happens to to people that sometimes it seems like we all kind of go through it for just a brief period of time, and then we all just kind of move on. And in some regards, that's good because, you know, we're moving on from something that we honestly want to forget. But at the same time, I feel that it's important that we don't forget that these things happen, not only for the victim's sakes, I mean, the amount of people that lost their lives in this event is truly staggering, but just the mere fact that, you know, if this remains in our conscious and in the back of our minds, then maybe, you know, just maybe we'll be able to prevent something like this from happening again. And I feel like oftentimes the news media and, you know, television channels, they they cover it for a brief time, and then once everybody's kind of moved on, that's the end of it. And you only hear about it on the 10 20 30 year anniversaries and then it's just kind of kind of gone and like it never happened so that's why i cover these is because i think it's important that we always remember what these people went through on this day and that this could happen to any of us i mean these are all just innocent people that were enjoying a festival a music festival i mean how many of us go to music festivals and probably have had the thought of what would happen if somebody came in here and just opened fire on us what would i do right i mean you're in a very vulnerable location and you know basically someone could look at you at every angle especially outside yeah like this event was i mean even inside though sometimes i i think you know what 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 if somebody started shooting in here or even the movie theater i mean even to this day after the aurora theater shooting i've never Not had that thought when I go into a movie theater of what happens if somebody came in and started shooting, what am I going to do? Am I going to am I going to hide? Am I going to run out what exit I'm going to go through? I mean, I feel like that's kind of all become a part of our Conscious at Mm -hmm. this point and it's sad that that's the world we're in but It's the it's kind of the cold hard reality of things is like these things are not stopping they're going to continue to happen and and it almost feels like there's not much we can do. And I think one of the ways that we might be able to figure out how we might be able to prevent something like this is by looking into the lives of the perpetrators. And we don't do this in order to give them fame or give them attention or make them look a certain way. It's more so to hopefully try to dig in and understand what leads people to this point where they decide, you know what, I don't care about anything in this world. I I have no love for anything. I've I've become essentially a machine where I have no conscious. I don't have any sort of feeling about the world anymore. I'm cold. And they decide to carry out an absolutely tragic event like this. So that is what we are going to be diving in today. It's gonna be a very heavy, very disturbing graphic episode. Hopefully we, you know, we're not gonna scare anybody too bad but I think it's important to get a really realistic understanding of what people went through because I mean oftentimes the news media they really kind of glaze over things they don't really show you the reality they do. of things yeah they give you a very watered down version they don't tell you the you know sort of the cold hard facts about about what really went down so that is that is sort of my goal for today is to try to give you a very clear picture of what happened in october of 2017 in las vegas nevada this episode of the podcast is also brought to you by every plate honey bartleby and stamps.com and i wanted to say that you know i when i do these episodes it, to be totally transparent with you it's it's hard to obviously do sponsors on these types of events and the more i've thought about it the more i've realized that you know what i want to especially in this case, because so many people are affected by this horrible tragedy that I'm going to donate all of the ad revenue from this episode to the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center. And they're a nonprofit organization that are actually helping provide support to Las Vegas and victims of these terrible attacks. And I feel like it's only right of me to do that and do you know what little I can to not only spread awareness about you know these victims stories and what they went through that day but also you know provide what little relief that i can so just know that when you hear the sponsors in today's episode please listen to them please support them because you're in turn going to be supporting the vegas strong resilience center because i'm going to be donating all that ad revenue to to them so thank you guys for supporting the show and supporting that organization with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the Las Vegas massacre. So, the perpetrator of this event was Stephen Paddock. And if we go back, there's not a whole lot of information about his backstory, but Stephen Paddock was born on April 9th, 1953, in Clinton, Iowa, to his parents, Benjamin and Dolores. He also had three younger brothers as well. And what's kind of crazy, I guess you could say, is that His father was actually a notorious bank robber. And during his first arrest in 1960, he tried to run over an FBI agent, ended up being convicted and sent away for 20 years in prison, but actually escaped prison and was on the run from 1968 to 1978. But instead of going back to prison, they allowed him to pay a $100,000 fine and he ended up being released. But after Benjamin Paddock was released from prison, he never actually went back to his family. Stephen was actually only seven years old when his father was arrested. And his mother told him and his brothers that their father was actually dead. And he wasn't really dead, but he was dead to the family at that point. His father didn't actually pass away until 1998. So just his parents' backstory is very bizarre. His father was a criminal, so definitely keep that in mind. But Stephen Paddock was viewed as friendly and easygoing grown up. As an adult, he enjoyed entertaining friends and traveling, and he was well-liked by coworkers, neighbors, and friends. He had several jobs through the years, working as an auditor, accountant, apartment manager, mail carrier, and real estate investor. He owned multiple rental properties all over the country. All these jobs gave him plenty of money for his favorite hobby, gambling. Some of those around him even viewed Stephen as a professional gambler. And for most of his adult life, he lived in L.A. He got married and divorced twice, but never had any kids that anyone knew of. He lived in Florida near his mother and brother for a little while and spent some time in Texas. But eventually he settled down in Nevada. He preferred the dry desert air and easy access to his favorite hobby, gambling and all of the nightlife and casinos. As he got older, he stopped entertaining though and became sort of a recluse. And in 2012, he actually tried to sue the Cosmopolitan, which if you've never been to Las Vegas, the Cosmopolitan is a very, very upscale hotel, very beautiful, Uh, and he tried to sue them for $10,000 after he slipped and fell there. But this case was dismissed. In 2015, he moved into a 55-year-old and older retirement community in Mesquite, Nevada, where he lived there with his girlfriend, Mary Lou Danley which Mesquite, Nevada is about 80 miles northeast of Las Vegas. Stephen was a heavy drinker and kept a very low profile in his retirement community. Neighbors barely saw him, and when they did, he rarely acknowledged their presence. Other than going out to drink and singing karaoke with Mary Lou, he did not have much of a social life. However, Steven spent a lot of time on high stakes gambling in Vegas. Often buying chips worth over $10,000 in a single day, which is an amount that's pretty high, and at this amount it has to be reported to the government. He mostly played video poker, though, and the casino hosts knew him very well. And oftentimes, because he was a frequent customer, spent a lot of money with the hotels and casinos, they oftentimes gave him rooms and meals on the house. But since he played online, He wasn't known in any other gambling circles. So because he was playing video poker and not poker in person, he was able to kind of remain this anonymous person. Steven identified as an atheist and had no history of violence or political extremism. He never showed any interest in machine guns or automatic weapons, as far as we know. The only things that he had on his record were a few minor traffic citations but otherwise it was totally clean. He did take medication for anxiety, and also he refused antidepressants when his doctor told him that he might be bipolar. His anxiety may have developed from his gambling and his gambling debts. He lost a lot of money after moving to Nevada, but most of that debt was paid off by the fall of 2017. That year, Steven really started struggling, he was 64 years old at that point, and he wasn't interested in going out with Mary Lou anymore and pretty much decided to check out of the relationship. September of 2017, Mary Lou was actually visiting the Philippines when he randomly wired her, I think a hundred to $150,000. And she assumed that this was like a parting gift for her, that he was ending the relationship, and this was basically telling her, here's some money, That's it, we're done. Stephen also started experiencing some health issues. He started taking germs much more seriously than he had ever before, and he had very strong reactions to smells that normally didn't bother him. He also felt like he was sick and tired all the time and had random physical pains. He only complained to family members, but they brushed it off as typical problems with aging. No one suspected anything really serious was going on with Stephen. But despite all of this information, which is just basically telling us he's a typical 64-year-old single man with a lot of money like so many other men are out there like him. But secretly, Stephen was devising a plan that would become the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman in North American history. That to me is just so crazy about this whole thing is the fact that most of the times when you go look at these people that carry out domestic terrorist attacks mass shootings and you look at their background there's usually things you can point to to say those had an effect on them that person to a point where they decided that enough is enough i need to whatever take take matters into my own hands and execute something truly evil. But with Stephen, it's like, as far as we know, and I mean, maybe there's things we don't know about him. Maybe there's things that we don't know about his past. I'm sure there's some secrets out there that we just don't know about him because otherwise this, this is just such a, makes no sense, a true mystery on why he would conduct this horrific attack. But in the days leading up to the attack, Steven started secretly stockpiling weapons and ammunition and also started researching different venues all over the country, looking for the perfect spot where he could do the most damage with a mass shooting. He looked at venues in Santa Monica, Chicago, and Boston and actually started traveling around in order to scope them out as early as May 2017. That August, he stayed in a hotel room overlooking the Lollapalooza music festival in Chicago which was one of his potential targets. In September, we know that he searched online for things like SWAT weapons, ballistics chart 308, SWAT Las Vegas, and asking questions like, do police use explosives? He also carefully tracked crowd sizes at Santa Monica beaches and Las Vegas concerts. That August, him and Mary Lou stayed at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino directly across from Las Vegas Village, which is a 15-acre open-air venue on the strip he was scoping it out as a potential target because he knew that the annual route 91 harvest country music festival was just around the corner during the stay in the mandalay bay he spent a lot of time looking out the different windows going back and forth from one to the other which mary lou even thought was kind of odd on september 17th he checked into the ogden condos in downtown las vegas The Life is Beautiful Festival, which is an outdoor music and art festival, was set to start on September 22nd. He had researched the lineup and attendance numbers for both concerts and found rooms where he'd be able to see the crowds. And that's when he made his final choice. The Route 91 Harvest Festival was held September 29th to October 1st, 2017. It was the fourth and last year it would be held. The lineup of performers was released by the las vegas radio station 95.5 the Bull on twitter before the festival huge crowds were expected to attend especially on the last day for the headliner country music star jason aldean steven checked into the mandalay bay resort and casino which is located on the south end of the las vegas strip two days before the festival started and during this day he had specifically requested a high-level sweep in the 43-story hotel with a view of the festival. If you've never been to Las Vegas before, it can sometimes be hard to wrap your head around the size of these hotels. These Las Vegas hotels are- Massive. Not even like what you would, like bigger than any hotel I think most people, especially people in other countries like the UK or Australia could Mm -hmm. even imagine. Like These things are absolutely, just hundreds of thousands of square feet, so many rooms. I mean, cause you wonder like, well, why, you know, why aren't people noticing this guy? Why isn't anybody saying, you know, why aren't people noticing his weird behavior? Mm -hmm. But you can truly in Vegas, you can truly disappear. Like, oh yeah, there's so many people, there's so much going on that you can basically not be seen by anyone Mm -hmm. because there isn't enough people paying attention with what everybody's doing. That's exactly they can account for what what everybody's doing mm-hmm. so it's very easy to just disappear into these massive hotels some of the last footage that we have of Stephen paddock come from when he was checking in at the vip counter he ended up checking into room 135 on the 32nd floor on monday september 25th and he also reserved the adjoining room 134 in mary lou's name which would be free on September 29th. And from this room, he had the perfect view of the festival setup at Las Vegas Village directly across from the hotel. And it is literally directly across the hotel. I know when I stayed there, I actually have stayed at Mandalay Bay, I think once or twice, and I've stayed on a room that overlooked Las Vegas Village and it is not that far away. So just keep that in mind. Surveillance footage shows Steven in the casino playing video poker, watching TV in a restaurant, buying snacks at a newsstand, and talking with hotel staff on at least 10 separate occasions. But to everybody who talked to him, it just seemed like a normal stay for him. I mean, he was there a lot. He spent a lot of time in the casino, so there's literally nothing out of the ordinary for him to be doing this. At first, he didn't bring any bags to his room. He hung out at the hotel and had dinner, and then around 5 p.m., he brought his Chrysler Pacifica minivan to the valet area, and a bellman helped him unload five suitcases. He insisted on staying close to his bags, so the bellman let Stephen come up with him through the service elevator, which is not something they typically do, but because he's kind of like this VIP guest, they let him use the service elevators. At 9.40, he left his hotel room with two suitcases and then drove home to his house in Mesquite. He stayed the night there and didn't return to Las Vegas until the following night. Around 8 p.m. on Tuesday, September 26, he stopped at the Ogden. The Life is Beautiful Festival was over by now, and he still had his room there, so clearly was seriously considering attacking that festival as well. But later that night, he went back to Mandalay Bay, and another bellman unloaded seven suitcases from his minivan. And again, Stephen followed the bellman and his suitcases through the service elevator all the way up into his room. He then headed to the casino and gambled for eight hours straight. And again, this was all completely normal for him. And everybody that knew him or had crossed paths with him before said there was nothing that raised any sort of alarm bells for them. But by Wednesday, he had 12 bags in his hotel room. And inside these bags were just loads and loads of guns and ammunition. And the bellman had no idea that they were helping him assemble an absolute arsenal in his room. That night, he loaded two suitcases into his van, stopped at the Ogden, and then drove home for the night. On Thursday, he left home and stopped at a gun store where he bought a bolt action rifle and then proceeded to go to the gun range. Later on, he ended up getting back to the Mandalay Bay, where a bellman again helped him unload a white container and three suitcases. Then Stephen went to the casino and gambled until dawn. On Friday, September 29th, the first day of the Route 91 Harvest Festival, he checked into the second room, 134, under his girlfriend's name and using her ID. After the staff cleaned his room, he asked them to leave the two food service carts outside. That night, he drove home again and returned to the hotel at 6 a.m. the next morning. Again, he brought two additional suitcases back to his room. On the afternoon of September 30th, a Saturday, he put do not disturb signs on both of his room doors. He then proceeded to go to the valet area and got two more bags from his van. After gambling for a while, he drove home again. But he returned to the hotel at 3 a.m. on Sunday, October 1st, which was also going to be the final day of the Route 91 Harvest Festival. That night, there was gonna be over 22,000 people gathered in the Las Vegas Village to watch the performance of country singer Jason Aldean. Steven obviously knew that. So for the earlier part of that day, that morning rather, he was just gambling like normal, and then ended up going back to his room at 7.37 a.m. At 12:16 p.m. he exited the elevator to the parking garage. He got two more suitcases and a bag from his van, and at this point he now had 21 suitcases, two additional bags, a white container, and his laptop bag in his two rooms. And throughout the rest of Sunday, he started working on putting his plan into action. He opened and closed and unlocked and relocked both room doors multiple times. He rigged cameras to the two service carts and put them in the hallway. He put a camera in the peephole of his room door. He then used an L-shaped bracket to secure the hallway door that opened onto the 32nd floor. He screwed the bracket into the door and the door frame to make sure it could not be opened. Then using a hammer, he smashed one window in each of his adjoining rooms, which both of these windows looked out directly onto the festival grounds. Steven's room was an armory at that point. He had 24 firearms, including 14 AR-15 assault rifles, eight 308 caliber AR-10 type rifles, one 308 caliber Ruger American bolt action rifle, and one 38 caliber Smith & Wesson Model 342 revolver. The 14 AR-15 rifles were equipped with bump stocks, and 12 of them had 100 round magazines. Bump stocks are used to make rifles fire faster, much like machine guns, but with far less accuracy. At 9.36 p.m., he then locked the deadbolt to room 135 and didn't leave the rooms again. (sighs) Gotta take a deep breath, because this is when things just start to get really, really heavy. So to kind of break this episode up a little bit and just take a quick break, I want to thank our sponsors real quick and we'll be right back. Homework questions. Had to just take a quick break. Hopefully you took a quick break as well. And again, would really appreciate if you check out our sponsors. It does really help us out and you're also gonna directly help out the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center, which we're donating all ad revenue from those sponsors you just heard to that organization. All right. Let's go ahead and get back into this horrifying story. It's about to get really crazy. So just for a warning, I'm gonna be playing some audio just because I think it really helps wrap your head around what people went through during this event. But just be aware that it's gonna get much more disturbing from this point on. So again, it's October 1st, it's that night the last night of the harvest festival jason aldean's about to go on at 10 p.m and stephen paddock has deadbolted the door to one of his rooms and deadbolted the other about 10 minutes later and again because the doors have been open left open left closed this generated an alert to the security at the hotel and security guard jesus campos headed up to the 32nd floor via elevator at 10 p.m. In order to investigate an alert of an open door in a guest room down the hall from Paddock's suite. Once he gets up there, Campos checks a stairwell door that blocked his entry to the floor minutes earlier and discovers that it's been fastened closed with an L bracket. So literally a bracket has been installed into the door in order to keep it shut, like somebody drilled it. So he thought that was obviously very weird, So at 10.04 p.m., Jesus calls security dispatch to report the blocked door. His call, for whatever reason, is just routed to the facility's maintenance department, which then dispatches maintenance engineer, Stephen Chuck, to go to the floor in order to take a look at it. What's interesting to me is that more eyebrows weren't raised about this L-bracket because it's very, very weird to find an L-bracket on a door in a hotel especially by security. And you know that that's not supposed to be there. So you start wondering, why was this there? But he was just doing his job. He didn't know any other information other than that. And so it was just kind of a routine service call. A minute later though, Steven Paddock fires two initial shots at the Las Vegas village. And then he fires some more. Then Jesus Campos hears what he later described as a rapid drilling noises as Steven Paddock fires about 100 rounds at the concert goers below. Remember, Steven had placed surveillance cameras outside his room. And so as Jesus Campos starts heading down towards the rooms to look at it further, because at first he's thinking it sounded like jackhammers going off. So he thought that was really weird and was gonna go kind of check it out. But again, those service carts are out in the hallway. And Steven had set up cameras on those so that he could see what was happening outside of his suites and as soon as he sees jesus coming towards the suite steven paddock starts shooting through the door and down the hallway where he fired a number of shots at him and ended up hitting the security guard in the leg and again jesus is unarmed so he can't return fire and the best thing he can do is take cover and radios a hotel dispatcher for help while also giving them Steven Paddock's room number on that 32nd floor. After shooting Jesus Campos, Steven Paddock goes back to firing hundreds of rounds at the concert goers. Two Las Vegas police officers are already in the building on another call actually, and they start heading upstairs, presumably to try to find the source of the gunfire, along with two armed Mandalay Bay security guards. And over the next two minutes, Stephen Paddock takes several pot shots at jet fuel storage tanks at the nearby airport, striking them twice, but not igniting the fuel before he then turns his fire back on the concert crowd. What's crazy is that literally on the other side of this Las Vegas village area is the airport. And so he was able to reach these tanks with his weapons and thank God, wasn't able to blow these up. I mean, that would have been, I don't even want to know what that would have done. That would have been catastrophic. But then at 10, 10 p.m., Stephen Chuck, the building engineer, finally arrives on the 32nd floor, and Jesus Campos yells for him to take cover. And obviously, Stephen Paddock is also watching the hallway, and he sees him come up as well. And so Stephen Paddock starts firing down the hallway again. And it's at this point that Stephen Chuck radios hotel dispatch to send the police to the 32nd floor and we'll play a little bit of that hotel radio call for you now call the police someone's firing a gun up here someone's firing a rifle on the 32nd floor down the hallway it's at the end of the hallway i can't tell you what room he looked like he fired down the hallway when i got close to the door after that second call for help and for the fact that somebody's shooting on the 32nd floor obviously the authorities now know that they need to head up to the 32nd floor, but they don't know what they're dealing with. And they don't know with how many people they're dealing with, how many people are actually shooting. This was still a mystery at this point, as they just heard, you know, these two heard bullets going off, but they had no idea how many people were up there or if there was any others in other areas. I mean, they had literally no idea. So as soon as they take cover and they're kind of just waiting for help to come, Stephen Paddock opens up again on the concert goers below. And I'm gonna go ahead and play just a little bit of some cell phone footage that was captured from that night to kind of give you a, a real look at what people were experiencing that night. Go. Oh Once Steven Paddock started firing on the crowd, it did take a little bit of time for people to really realize what was going on. I mean, it's a concert, it's a music festival. There's 22,000 people there. I mean, it's really loud, music playing. So at first, people thought it was firecrackers. I mean, nobody thought it was gunshots. But shortly after, you know, Steven Paddock fired, stopped, fired again, stopped, fired again, that's when people knew. Because the music stopped, Jason Aldean and his crew completely fleed the stage, and the crowd got really quiet and that's when people just started running and they started realizing and seeing people go down being hit by all these bullets that were just raining down on them and it's just absolutely insane to think what it would be like to be in that position where you're literally running for your life like fight or flight kicks in and you're just You don't know where the bullets are coming from, you don't know where the shooters are, you have no clue even really what's happening other than the fact that you're watching people be pelted by these bullets hitting the ground, they're screaming, I mean, absolute, absolute chaos. And I mean, people are obviously on their phones, they're calling 911, and 911 was getting so hammered by people calling that there was like people on hold. And when you call 911, the last thing you want to be told is to wait on hold for an emergency call. So with that being said, I wanna play some of the 911 calls that people placed. Oh my God, they're still shooting. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. They're still shooting, they're still shooting. And your friend has been shot? Ah! Oh my God. Hello? I don't know where you are. You have to give me an address. The whole concert's down on the ground. Mandalay Bay security dispatch. We have a active shooter in room three two one thirty five. Three two one three five. Yep, thirty second floor Mandalay Bay. One thirty five. Just utter chaos, man. I mean, you're just running for your life at that point. You're just hoping you don't get hit by bullets. It's it's and you're hoping you're not getting trampled. I mean, with that many people, it's very, be very easy to get trampled by the crowd and not be able to escape. And on top of that, there was a security fence around the venue, which blocked many people who were trying to escape. So some people just kind of ducked for cover, tried to like just lay in place and hope they weren't hit. But no one had any clue what was happening. They didn't know where the gunman was. They didn't even really know where the bullets were coming from. I mean, even police officers were completely confused. And at first, there was reports from different hotels that there was bullets. I think the Tropicana Hotel uh, they had somebody call that said that there was a shooter there. I mean, there was all these reports coming in that there was multiple shooters, that there is multiple uh, origins of of gun sh- gunshots happening. I mean, it was just everybody's just kind of running around, like looking every which way, not not sure which way is the safe way, which way is the way to escape. So people are just trying to get out of there as fast as possible. And I mean, people are are going down. And this is one of those events where I have to give. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police the credit they deserve because they they were absolutely heroes in this this particular event I mean to to be in this absolute chaotic situation and to be running into you know the concert venue to try to get people out of there to get people that have been shot into vehicles I mean it was just absolute mass pandemonium and to be in that type of position I, I don't think many of us have any clue what that's like and just i have so much respect for police officers that take their their duty and their service seriously mm-hmm. and they're really there to protect and serve and, and risk their own life in order to save other people i have nothing but respect for for any any officer any first responder that that does that i mean it's being selfless mm-hmm. and let's check out some of this body cam footage of of what the officers were dealing with firsthand i mean it's absolutely astounding what they dealt with hey they're shooting right at us guys everybody stay down stay okay. down where's it at north of the Manly base Come out of the window, north of the Bay, out of the window. Okay. this way this way this way this way this way this way, way. go 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 go. That way, that way that way that way i mean just based off of that body cam footage it really gives you a sense of what it was like to be there, I mean, firsthand, and obviously it's a tiny glimpse into what what people actually went through. But just hearing the the bullets in the background, you can hear the rapid fire of of bullets just raining down on people. And you know, it, after a while, they got enough information that they're like, "Okay, there's those broken windows up there on the Mandalay Bay. That's where the bullets are coming down from." But I, but again, I mean, there's just so much confusion. They they really had no idea. How many gunmen were there? That's what's so scary is that in this type of situation, nobody had seen gunmen. Nobody knew where they were. So it's this giant mystery still. They know it's coming from maybe this direction. But but then again, there is like people seeing, you know, what looked like guns going off. I mean, also at night in Las Vegas, there's all these lights. It's completely lit up. So, you know, a lot of these weapons are going to give off a muzzle flash. So you're going to be able to see, you know, muzzle flash out the window. And I think that's kind of how they spotted spotted him shooting out of those those broken windows, which I'm like, with the broken windows, I'm like, how is there no alarms on the broken windows? Good point. Right. Why wasn't that like, really, if you break a window in a hotel like that, there's not a alarm that goes off. Mm -hmm. I I would think there would be, but apparently not. Seems like a safety hazard to not have an alarm. Yeah. Because what if somebody like tried to like jump out a window or break it to do to. I don't know do do something like that there's no alarm that it's interesting that the only way they knew to go up to the 32nd floor was the open door alarm on that floor Mm -hmm. that it wasn't the windows I don't know that's just kind of kind of interesting to me definitely but it's very hard and confusing at night it's loud in Las Vegas there's tons of lights the city's just lit up at night so I mean it'd be very tough to to know you know where where gunshots are coming from and there's reflections, there's glass everywhere, so it's just it's just so chaotic, it, it's absolutely crazy. But while all this was happening, many of the people who were there started to record on their cell phones, and many of them thought that this would be some of their last moments alive. And as the shooting continued, more people were hit. They started plugging bullet holes with their fingers and holding their hands against their bodies to help stop the bleeding. Off-duty officers and anyone with law enforcement and military experience tried to help organize the chaos. They told people where to run and to stay low and keep moving. Some people even ran toward the danger in order to help those who had been shot to get them to safety or to just figure out where the gunshots were coming from. People were desperately calling out for medics and strangers literally pulled each other off of the ground, helping them get up and move and literally just getting people into strangers' vehicles passing by to get them to the hospital because there wasn't enough ambulances, There's no way to get people the help they needed as fast as they needed to do it. But the bursts of gunfire ranged from 80 to 100 rounds. 1,058 rifle rounds were shot from 15 firearms up to 490 yards into the crowd. And again, at one point, Steven shot eight bullets at a jet fuel tank approximately 2,000 feet away at McCarran International Airport. Two of the shots hit the tank, but because it was mostly kerosene, which is less likely to ignite, it thankfully didn't explode. Officers on the ground, again, we were confused, had no idea where things were coming from, but they suspected the bullets are coming from the Mandalay Bay, but they still weren't sure because there was a ton of false reports of additional shooters, which only added to the confusion. And it slows down the response time because I mean, the officers now have to now account for all the possible scenarios that could unfold. They thought this was a full on like terrorist attack organized by a bunch of people that carried this out and that they were going to be, this could have been one wave of many, throughout the entire night. So they really had no clue, you know, who was behind this or how many people were involved. By 10:12 PM, two armed Mandalay Bay security officers arrived on the 32nd floor. And the police and security officers on the 31st floor realized that the shooting was coming from one floor above them. At 10:13 PM, the police on the ground saw the flashes of gunfire coming from the windows in the hotel. They reported the shots were coming from high up on the north side. And then two minutes after that, at 10.15 p.m., the shooting abruptly stopped. All of this had happened in about 10 minutes. By 10.16 p.m., the news of the attacks had spread across social media. And at 10.17 p.m., the police officers finally stepped onto the 32nd floor, where Jesus, the injured security guard, told them which room the shots were coming from. At 10.20 p.m., an officer reported that it had been a while since they heard any shots and they were outside room 135 by 10.24 p.m. and were waiting there for the SWAT team to arrive. And again, at this point, law enforcement had no idea how many shooters they were dealing with, and at that point, they issued an active shooter alert at 10.25 p.m. because they believe they were dealing with two or three attackers. Taxi drivers in the area received a message from the police about possibly three active shooters at the hotel and were told to avoid the area. And between 10.26 p.m. and 10.30 p.m., Eight more officers joined those already on the 32nd floor. Jesus gave them the master key, and they searched and cleared each hotel room one by one, checking on guests and evacuating them. Even with a bullet wound in his leg, Jesus still helped lead countless people to safety. Also at 10.30, police officers on the ground were starting to bring people into the hotel in case more shots were fired. The active shooter alert was confirmed at 10.38 through the Las Vegas Police Department's Twitter account. And officers inside the hotel continued to wait for the SWAT teams to arrive. By 1055, all guests had been evacuated from their rooms, and the SWAT team, when they finally arrived, they used an explosive device to open the door to room 135, and they blew the door wide open at eleven twenty. After they breached Stephen Paddock's suite, they came in, and right away it was apparent they had the right suite because there was guns, ammunition littered everywhere. And right away, that's when they walked in and found Stephen Paddock lying dead on the ground. He had shot himself in the head. They ended up blowing the doors off the other suite to the adjoining room to search that. But at 11.27 p.m., they confirmed that the suspect was down over the police radio. But the shooting wasn't officially declared over until 12.31 a.m. on Monday, October 2nd. And the Las Vegas Police Department put out another tweet confirming that the suspect was down. But again, they wanted to make sure that there was nobody else involved and they just didn't know. But from, you know, once they got into Stephen Paddock's room, it became very clear that this was most likely their one and only suspect. As a result of this absolute massacre, sadly, 58 people lost their lives and 868 people were injured. No one inside the hotel was killed. And Jason Aldean, who had been performing when it started, confirmed that him and his crew were safe. And what's crazy is that, Throughout that entire night, I mean, they were still doing searches. They were making absolutely sure there wasn't any other threats out there, and they weren't even able to secure the scene for the coroner to come in till the till the next day, uh, till later that morning. And the Clark County Coroner's Office confirmed that every victim died of gunshot wounds. Thirty-one people died during the shooting, and twenty-five died that night at the hospital, with an additional two deaths on October third. The official death toll of this event was actually raised to 61, including the shooter later on in 2020. A 57-year-old woman who had been paralyzed the day of the shooting died in 2019, and her official cause of death was related to the shooting. In May of 2020, a 49-year-old woman had been shot in the leg, died from complications as a result of that injury. And that's what's so just absolutely crazy, is that this was an absolute war zone. I mean, this was literally what soldiers experience in war yeah yeah automatic gunfire like this and just bullets raining down on you and i mean 61 people dead but 800 plus people seriously injured if not carrying critical injuries for the rest of their life that's so many people starting. like i mean that's just it's really hard to wrap your head around that it, is. it really is Initially, the Las Vegas police declined to include these deaths in the official count, but this decision was changed on October 1st, 2020, approximately three years after the attack. But this was a deadly shooting by a single gunman since 49 people were killed at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando on June 12th, 2016. And to this day, it remains the deadliest mass shooting in North American history. The night of the massacre, injured people were taken to several local hospitals. Over 50% of those injured were transported in cars and not ambulances. Interstate 15 had been shut down and those taking injured people in their own vehicles didn't know, which added to the chaos. Also, there was even more confusion when a false report went out that one of the hospitals had reached capacity an hour after the shooting. All four runways at McCarran International Airport were shut down for hours and over 25 flights were rerouted. 300 people fled to the airport grounds in order to escape the gunfire. In the hours after the shooting, The SWAT team searched all local businesses. I mean, they had to because they just didn't know. And at 9 a.m. on October 2nd, Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo publicly announced that the shooter had been identified as Stephen Paddock. And during a police news conference, they asked for any public information about the shooting and gave an FBI number to call if someone took footage on their cell phone. They also provided a number to call to locate loved ones who may have been injured and killed and asked anyone who was able to donate blood. And the people of Las Vegas really came out to support those affected by this. And that's why I, I'm donating to the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center because there are still people that are dealing with injuries as a result of this horrific attack. And I mean, this was not even that long ago. This was like four years ago. So there's, I mean, and there's people that are gonna be dealing with the injuries of this attack for the rest of their lives. So it's just in in times of absolute horror, It's amazing to see how people, you know, come together and help each other out and really support each other, come out, donate, give blood, and really provide support for these victims. But kind of when all this is going on, the police are really launching their investigation into Stephen Paddock because obviously they want to figure out, was this planned? Was there any other things they needed to know about? And so they headed out to Stephen's home in Mesquite with a search warrant by 9 a.m. The following day and the search was slow taking one step at a time to make sure there was no explosives or other booby traps they also disassembled and searched his minivan which was still parked at the hotel they ended up finding explosives at his home and in the van between the hotel room steven's home and his place at the ogden they found 42 guns and at least one had been turned into an automatic weapon. Law enforcement had the really tough job of trying to investigate this guy because there was just tons of false information that was being spread around about the shooter online and through social media. ISIS even claimed Stephen Paddock as one of their soldiers, but there was no evidence of this ever found. Uh, the FBI also dismissed reports that he was part of ISIS or any sort of terrorist group. Um, he was not part of Antifa. And stories about a second gunman and stories that misidentified the shooter uh, had to be shut down. So that's why they were, you know, chasing down every lead. After searching through Stephen Paddock's van, his house, investigators combed through four laptops and three cell phones. And on those were hundreds of child pornography photos. And they also discovered that he had thoroughly researched and planned the attack. And through the investigation, some small details of the police timeline also have changed, which made some people suspicious. But the police have said that these changes are normal in complex investigations like this one. Investigators watched 22,000 hours of video footage and studied 252,000 images. They followed up on over 2,000 leads and interviewed everyone in Steven's life, including his girlfriend, Mary Lou Danley, who was in the Philippines at the time of the shooting. She was briefly considered a person of interest, but later cleared. What makes this situation unique with Steven Paddock is the fact that he didn't leave a suicide note and all he left behind was a handwritten note that calculated the distance, wind, and trajectory from his hotel room, which they found when they bust through into his suite. They also found a bulletproof vest and breathing apparatus in the room, but he hadn't used them. Fingerprints on ammunition in the hotel room belonged to an ammunition dealer in Arizona, named Douglas Haig, and he was charged with conspiracy to manufacture and sell armor, piercing ammunition without a license, and ended up serving 13 months in prison. Las Vegas police completed their investigation on August 3rd, 2018, and the FBI completed their investigation on January 29, 2019. A behavioral analyst with the FBI concluded that there was no single or clear motivating factor for the shooting. But there are several speculations about why Steven carried out this attack. As Stephen got older, he became more isolated, and a family friend told investigators that Stephen hired sex workers and had hired a sex worker just days before the shooting. He seemed easily overwhelmed, and the FBI speculated that the stress of aging could have affected his actions. They also believed he wanted to achieve infamy and die by suicide. He could have been a narcissistic thrill seeker, These types of killers want to inflict as much damage as possible and enjoy watching other people suffer. Some have theorized that he was in debt from his gambling, but he left a lot of money behind. So this is unlikely. His doctor believed he suffered from depression. If he was suicidal, he could have decided to take out other people with him. The child pornography on his computer suggests that he didn't care about exploiting innocent victims to get what he wanted. His methodical, elaborate planning suggested that he wanted everyone to see how smart he was. There are some other questions about his childhood. One of his brothers, Bruce, was arrested and charged with possession of child pornography, but the charges were later dropped. But two brothers caught with child pornography makes it more likely that something from their childhood may have severely messed them up. Which to me, this tells me that there's probably other things that happened in his childhood and his past that we just don't know about. I mean, we really don't know that much about his upbringing. We don't know about really much of anything of major significance other than the public information that's out there about his father. And even when the media went to Eric Paddock, one of Steven's brothers, and they interviewed him after the shooting, and he said even he was completely shocked by what his brother had done and had no idea why. And according to him, in the previous six months, they had only exchanged a few brief text messages, which tells me that Steven Paddock was truly isolated I and mean, he was truly like in his own own world at that point. And his brother, I think, said something along the lines of This happening was like an asteroid hitting Earth, like nobody could have, have seen it coming. Like it was just it was just as much of a surprise to him as it was to all of us. But at the end of the day it's really hard to know why Steven Paddock did this. I think there is a lot of things we don't know. I think there's a lot of probably questions that will never be answered because the guy who has the answers is is dead. I think clearly there is mental illness here. I think there's probably things from his past that may have played into this. But I mean, at the end of the day, the police, the FBI, all said that they have no idea what would have motivated him to do this. They found no evidence of any clear reason and i think that's what's so bizarre and just so crazy honestly about this this event is that we just why why do this it was really just to go out and be this infamous character i mean i don't i don't get it i guess we don't understand all the crazy things people do but this just seems like I don't know i'm just at a loss for words i don't even know what to what to say about this one this is just just hard to wrap your mind around that somebody a human being would want to do something like this but if that wasn't crazy enough a month after the shooting a lawsuit was filed against mandalay bay hotel and mgm resorts international on behalf of 450 victims the lawsuit claimed the hotel was negligent because Stephen paddock was able to bring in so many weapons And in July of 2018, MGM Resorts International literally countersued the victims. And they say this is just a legal move, that they just did this to basically protect their own ass, and that, you know, it was no way disrespectful toward the victims. But honestly, I think that's just, I think MGM Resorts definitely has some blame here. But two years after the shooting, a settlement of $800 million in restitution was reached. And this was approved by a judge on September 30th, 2020. The settlement will be divided among over 4,000 victims and family members which this was a huge win for the victims and this happened on the third anniversary of the shooting and it's the largest settlement ever given for a tragedy like this. But unfortunately some legal issues have slowed down the compensation but hopefully the disbursement of the settlement is on track to begin in March of 2021 so this year. I'm just glad that after all this that the victims are going to get some restitution hopefully to hopefully help them i mean so many people have endless medical bills i mean their lives are changed forever i mean the amount of damage is just beyond repair at this point but at least some of this money might help them you know recover and help them pay for some of the bills they might have but with that i'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up here so these episodes are just always so hard cuz by the end of these i'm just like yeah. So, I mean, you're the best way to describe it is just this overall heaviness. Definitely. Like, on, like, you just, like, my chest right now just feels like I have a sandbag in it. Like, my heart yeah. is just so yeah. heavy. And, and when you watch this footage and you hear this people screaming and you hear the bullets flying, it's just. It's hard to believe that this was real. This was a real thing that happened, that people really went through this. I mean, this seems like something out of a movie, almost yeah. like something like out of a horrible plot of a movie, but this was real. And this could happen again. This could happen anywhere. I mean, to to wrap your head around the fact that you really aren't safe anywhere in yeah, these large true. events. And I mean, I'm glad that they're they've taken steps to try to avoid this and you know, they're watching guests more closely. Security's definitely amped up. A ton after this, especially in and with the pandemic. I mean, we haven't had any music festivals like this, so there hasn't been opportunities for things like this to happen. But I mean, this isn't the only mass shooting that's happened in, you know, a live music setting like this before. But the idea that somebody could bring 42 guns into a hotel, up to a suite, and launch a full out attack like Stephen Paddock did is just mind-blowing honestly I just don't understand why these big hotels wouldn't have somebody like watching the cameras and notice because like he's right. Stephen Paddock is coming I mean he's coming through kind of back areas and stuff as they say mm-hmm. through the service elevators but like it's just wild that with how many people are coming in and out of your hotel and you it's your job to provide safety for them like why wouldn't you be A little suspicious that one guy is bringing in 21 bags like that seems like way out of the ordinary. And they're big bags like to hold all those guns. Right. They got to be heavy. Like, come on. That's just like. And and honestly, that's why I'm like MGM Resorts absolutely is responsible because there is negligence there. They should have. Right. I mean, come on. like, And you made up a good point earlier. Why why don't they have sensors on their windows? Yeah. You know, that's what I'm saying. That could have prevented it. I think that we all assume that these hotels, like if you were to break a window like that, mm-hmm. an alarm would go off and somebody would be rushing up to the room. But the fact that that's not the case, because God, how did he knock out two windows and nobody outside mm-hmm. saw like before that? But I guess I guess he did at night, so it's hard to see. But it's just it's crazy that this all unfolded in the way it did, and and yet he was able to do so much damage without people knowing that this was going to go down like it's just wild and how terrifying that must have been for everyone not knowing where those gunshots were coming from i mean talk about a helpless situation yeah i can't even just can't even wrap my head around it again i want to just say that in this case i think the police did about as good of a job as they could have possibly done i mean they didn't know what they were dealing with they could have been dealing with an army of attackers for all they knew but i think you know you can always point at things and be like oh they could have did this more effectively they could have gotten up to the 32nd floor faster and they could have stopped this way sooner but it's just like it's hard to judge people in that type of position in this circumstance without actually being in it and when you don't just don't know and again there's all these reports going around so i think at the end of the day i mean the police did save a lot of lives they were being yeah. medics they were and so, calling people out and so did the civilians who were yeah. there as well everybody stepped up Definitely to help save a, a ton of lives. And this this could have been a far higher death toll, I believe, if if the response wasn't as fast. If Stephen Paddock had been able to be up there, if Jesus Campos hadn't gone up there, I think that really threw him threw him off. Was yeah. the fact that Jesus Campos, a security guard, went up there and basically alerted everybody to a, a situation happening on thirty second floor. And once he knew that he was up there, and then the building engineer was up there, I think Stephen Paddock knew that this was going to be a short, a short attack because they were on their way. Right. And just like, and clearly this was a a suicide mission. I mean, there was no, he wasn't going to be caught. He wasn't going to be arrested. This was a one. He was like, he was planning this clearly to just end it before he was captured. But then just by his appearance, someone I would have never guessed. Yeah. Would do like, he's like an old man. Yeah. He's like an accounting accounting guy. Yeah. Like you just would never, No one ever guessed that this guy would be capable of doing something like this. And he was a regular there, too. So people just, yeah, hey, you know, what's up, type of thing. It's one of those things. It's like, can you really prevent something like this? Sometimes it's just like, I don't know if there is a way to prevent this. Because sometimes it's the most unsuspecting people that end up doing the most heinous things. But we'll go ahead and end today's episode there. And the way I want to end this episode is by... Remembering those that lost their lives on that day. And we'll just go ahead and end it there. The moment of silence for the victims. And with that, I'll see you guys next time.